Good morning, Missio. Our scripture reading for the day is from the book of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. We will also be reading from Revelations chapter 5, verses 1 through, 5 through 14. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. And the four creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Amen. 
Well, welcome everybody. My name is Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here. So if you're new, it's very good to have you. We are right now in a series entitled God Images, exploring how we perceive, how we picture God. And we'll jump into that in a moment, but throughout this series, we've been doing a thing called Ask Anything, where we've been asking the community or inviting the community to submit questions that emerge from this series to us so that we can take a whole service, April 11th, just to answer some of those questions. Because throughout the series, we have been wrestling with challenging ideas, challenging ideas about who God is, challenging ideas about what our images of God mean for our lives together, challenging images about God that might contradict our previous images of God, our previous understandings of God in ways that are substantial. And so beginning to lift some questions or, or raise some questions in us. And so if you would like to submit a question, you can do that by sending an email to ask at missiodayslc.com. Send them uh, this week, next week also, and then on April 11th, we will take that whole Sunday just to answer questions that kind of have emerged from this series. And for example of a question, somebody asked recently in an email, how can God be unchanging and yet so often referred to as changing their mind throughout the Bible? There's a theological concept called immutability, which sometimes people apply to God, which means that God cannot change or God cannot adjust or God cannot be different from one day or another. And yet you have moments where it seems like God is changing, adjusting how they think, adjusting what they're going to do. And so how do those two things stand together? That's a difficult image to wrestle with. Somebody else on a more personal note asked, how do I have an intimate relationship with God when prayer feels difficult and even painful? Like we're reorienting our images of God to be rooted in who we see displayed on the cross, and we're having this image of God that is like soaked in love, sacrificial love, yet for this person, prayer has felt like kind of an empty practice. And so how do you have an intimate relationship with God or curate intimate images with God when those Previous experiences have felt so painful or difficult or even just empty. So there's a couple of questions that have been submitted. Feel free to continue to submit your own, even really similar ones. We'll combine ones that are really similar together into one question and spend all of April 11th just answering those questions, which will be really cool. So on that note, I would like to begin with a couple of questions. Three questions to start our service today. Question number one. How do you see God? I've been asking this question throughout the whole sermon series. How do you see God? How do you understand God? How do you image God? All of us at some level, I think, have, um, well, you could say maybe like a gallery of God in our head, a set of images that we go to when we're thinking about God. Those images are shaped from different places and different sources and different traditions and different experiences, but they're all kind of arrayed in our mind, and so when we go to interact with God, we have an image of God. So how do you see God when you enter into your gallery of God? What are the first images that come to mind? What are the images that you see? Number two, what does that image tell you about how God functions or works in the world? What does that image communicate to you about the way God shows up 
in space and time, or the way that God shows up in your life, or the way that God interacts with you, or the way that God deals with injustice, or pain, or violence, or brokenness, or hurt, what does your image of God say about the way that God operates in the world? And finally, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for the way that you live and the way that you engage with God and the way that you live out your faith? These three questions are really the central questions of faith. They are the questions that make our faith what it is. We have a God that we worship, a way that we believe God operates, and a way that then leads us to operate in the universe around us. These questions shape the very content and nature of our faith. And so they're always important, right? At at an existential level, we're always asking these questions of ourselves and of our faith and of the world around us. But there are moments when these questions take on a new weightiness, where they become heavier because of the things that we've experienced in the world around us. I think that feels true right now in light of two weeks where we've witnessed mass shootings. Or maybe just the reality of being in a pandemic makes these questions heavy. We see something that is difficult or something that is tragic or something that is so challenging to our faith or to our understanding, and so we kind of go into our gallery of God to find an image that might be helpful, that might offer something to the tragedy that we've seen or to the experiences that we're having or to the problems of the world around us or to our own deep sets of questions. We go to our gallery of God to find some kind of image that might be helpful, that might speak something to these moments. And the problem for a lot of us is that the gallery of God that we have does not have an image that is great or speaks much to difficult moments. We enter into our gallery and we see an image of God that is distant, removed, or even just spiritual and ethereal, and that offers very little to the difficulties or the problems of the world around us. We go to our gallery of God and we see a picture of God, and maybe that God is weak, That does not offer much to the difficult realities that we experience around us. Or we go into our gallery of God and we have an image of God that is being transformed through a conversation around love, but we're not actually sure how that offers something to the injustice or pain or suffering or evil that we witness in the world around us. They seem too small or too inconsequential or like they lack the gravity to do something about the world. We search our gallery and often struggle to find an image. And I think something that can happen is that we search our gallery for an image of God to say something to evil or injustice or brokenness. And we, as we're digging through the different images that are in our head, moving aside this picture and moving aside this picture, we find one. Normally an image that we've kind of hidden in the back of the room. 
image that we don't really like most of the time. An image that we feel pretty uncomfortable with, which is why we've pushed it into back of the room. But in the midst of some crisis or trial, it also tends to be the only image that offers any word of hope or any word of power to the realities around us. And so in crisis, we pull back the images of God as loving or a shepherd, and we find the image of God as king or God as judge or God as warrior. And sometimes we start to pull it forward because we're like, this is the only thing that maybe says something to the brokenness of the world around us. But I think for most of us, that creates a very difficult tension. Because that image is unhelpful when we see injustice in the world. It is helpful to know or to think or to believe that God is a king or that God is a judge who may one day sentence evil, that he may one day condemn evil, that they may one day judge evil and overthrow empires of brokenness and injustice. Like that is image to hold on to in the midst of crisis. But I think at the same time, that same image is the one that we have worked hardest to deconstruct in our own lives. Because God as judge may say something to evil, but it also is so often the image that offers us shame and judgment for our own lives. We've seen this image wielded in painful ways. We've left churches because this image has been used in painful ways. I feel like most of the people I know who are in this church today have had some experience with an image of God as judgmental or overbearing or shameful and are now here trying to like work through what to do with that image of God they were given. It's not just us. I think some of our favorite moments in church history are people trying to deal with this image of God as judgmental. Protestant Reformation is famous for Luther discovering grace in the face of an image of God that was judgmental and overbearing. So it leads us into an interesting tension. This image seems to cause us so much difficulty and pain, and yet sometimes it feels like it's also the only image that says anything to the difficulties or the pain or the struggles of our world. And so what do we do with these images of God? How do we hold this tension together? How do we hold our need for justice with our pain and our fear that we've experienced from judgmental images? What do we do with King Jesus and the Jesus of the cross? What do we do with the shepherd picture of Jesus and the picture of Jesus on the throne? Well, this question and this tension is at the very heart of Palm Sunday, when Jesus triumphantly enters into Jerusalem as king and at the heart of our text in Revelation chapter 5. In this moment, there's a lot of things to get distracted by in Revelation chapter 5. But it's a vision that John has, and it's a vision that's meant to evoke worship. It's meant to lead us into like an imagination for who God is and what God is doing. And this is what John sees in Revelation chapter 5, 
verse 1, it says, Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one seated on the throne, and it had writing on the front and the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw an angel who proclaimed in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or under the earth could open the scroll or look inside. So I began to weep and weep because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside. The scroll is an image or metaphor for God's plan to rescue and redeem the world. It's an image that evokes what God is doing, what God is accomplishing in the world, and John sees it, and it's like he sees the hope, the hope that we just talked about, that the world might be rescued, that the world might be put right, that things that are broken and painful and destructive might be undone, and John sees the scroll, and he's like, there it is, there are the answers to the questions that I've been having. Here's the solution to all of the problems of the world that's in this scroll. Someone just needs to unfold it and let it roll. But no one in heaven or earth or under the earth could open the scroll. And there's something so human about the way this verse 4 begins. So I began to weep and weep. John sees the answers to like the deep justice questions of the world, and yet no one can unfold them, and so he begins to weep. It's the same way that I think we do when we see evil or injustice or brokenness explode in the world around us. We weep and weep because it feels like the solutions to those problems are so distant or so out of reach or so out of hand. Who can open it? And as John is weeping, it says the angel or the elder comes to John in verse 5. An elder said to me, John, don't weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has emerged victorious so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So John is weeping because no one can open the scroll and an elder of Israel comes and says, don't weep any longer, John. Someone's coming who can open the scroll. And then he uses this language that I think even for us who don't live in the ancient world immediately evokes certain kinds of images. It says the lion of the tribe of Judah. We don't have to even know that the lion of the tribe of Judah is referencing something specific, which is to know that it evokes this image of power and strength. Like, lion, yeah. Somebody mighty is coming. And the root of David, that connects this figure to the lineage of King David, who's an ancient Israelite king, who kind of becomes the archetypal model of what a king in the world is supposed to look like. These images for Israel, they immediately evoke something, some sense of something, some grand picture of a king, some grand picture of a mighty figure, some grand image of this hero riding a horse, a a man with a plan who's about to show up, unfold the scroll, and answer all the questions. We don't exactly have reference for this, but we do kind of do the same thing in our own world, that gives us a clue of how Israel would probably hear this text. 
It's like we have kind of a similar language when we talk about presidents. Sometimes we compare presidents to former presidents to like evoke a sense of their greatness. Sometimes we, we compare presidents to like leaders or heroes or use strong language or mighty language to evoke a sense of what they're going to do. And that language, that kind of wordage, paints a picture of somebody glorious, of somebody grand, of somebody mighty. It sets expectations in a certain way for us. It sets a set of expectations for what we're going to see. But then something happens that is fascinating. The elder says, look, this lion is coming the king in the likes of David who emerges victorious is about to arrive. And then John looks to where the elder is pointing. And what does it say? Then in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a mighty warrior. Oh no, I saw a lamb. I saw a heroic lion. Oh no, I saw a lamb who had been slain. It is the exact opposite image of all the things that were evoked in the language before. Instead of a glorious king or a conquering warrior or a mighty superhero or a man with a plan, instead of any of those things, it is a lamb who was slain. All those expectations that Israel had loaded into this moment, all the expectations that we bring to that moment are disrupted by a lamb who was slain. And that forces us to ask, what does that mean? What does it mean that the image of of God as a king and mighty and grand is actually a lamb that was slain, what does that mean about our God? What does that mean about our pictures of God? What does that mean about the way that God operates in the world? It means this, at least, that Jesus, the God on the throne, is the same as the God on the cross. That Jesus, who is the God on the throne, the king of the universe, does not ever stop being the Jesus who is on the cross, who laid down his life for his enemies, who sacrificially emptied himself for the other, who on Monday, Thursday, which we'll celebrate in a few days, takes the form of a servant to wash his disciples' feet. That Jesus never stops being the lamb who is slain even when he rules the universe. Jesus on the throne is Jesus on the cross. We have a tendency, I think, in our culture to take images of kings, images of judges, images of warriors that we absorb from the world around us, and then when we go into our gallery of God, we load those images onto God. Oh, this is what it means for Jesus to be king. Oh, this is what it means for Jesus to overcome the evil of the world. Oh, this is what it means for Jesus to undo injustice. He's going to look like these things. He'll be a man with a plan, a warrior on a horse, a lion of the tribe of Judah, roaring and whatever. But 
but instead he is the lamb who was slain. I think for so many of us, like this is why this image is difficult for us because we feel at some innate level the contradiction of, of the expectations we have in culture versus what we see on the cross. And we try to slam those two things together. And then we get images of God that seem so disordered. Where it's like one moment he's showing up loving and the other moment he's showing up angry. And what we see, or one moment he's showing up loving and gracious and hospitable and the other moment he's like destroying enemies in the traditional way, a king would. And you're like, I don't know how to put these things together. And that's because what was being revealed here is that the chief image is Jesus displayed on the cross. All other images, ideas, and concepts have to be subject to what we see on the cross. So as we begin the talk, which we will in a moment, about how does God deal with evil in the world, you can't take the image of Jesus on the cross and put it aside to replace it with another image. The way that Jesus is going to deal with evil in the world is going to be the same way Jesus shows up on the cross. That is always who God is, the lamb that was slain. New Testament scholar Michael Gorman says it really beautifully. He says this, In his exaltation, Jesus remains the lamb, the crucified one. He participates in God's identity and reign, making him worthy of worship as the slaughtered lamb and only as such. He does not stop being the lamb that was slain, the God on the cross, the sacrificial one who takes the form of a servant, empties himself for his people. He is always that God. And this is so hard for us. Because we want Jesus to show up in different ways. We want Jesus to act a different way. We want Jesus to look a different way. We want Jesus to be an endorsement of our own attempts at control and power and subversion or whatever. But he refuses. That's why when Jesus enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday riding a donkey that begins as a triumphant celebration, but by the end of the week, people are yelling, no king but Caesar. No one in that moment has a doubt about what the contest is. It's a contest between this king, Jesus, or Caesar who is king, and they represent such different ways of orienting yourself in the world, of living in the world, of ruling in the world. And we, like the ancient Israelites rarely want the kind of image, the kind of king that's displayed in Jesus. We would much prefer a king like Caesar. And I think part of the reason that our hearts tend to lean towards Caesar-like kings, cultural-like kings versus the lamb is that second question we asked at the beginning, how things get done in the world. How is God at work in the world? As we look at Jesus on the cross, what we see is that Jesus works on the throne the same way he does on the cross. That text in Revelation 5 continues. It says, The Lamb came forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne. 
When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down and worshipped. Each held a harp and gold bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I love that image. It's the same as our cry or our weeping. It's like they're holding hopes and expectations, and God's plan is in one hand, and the desires of the world are in another, and they're held in tension, waiting for someone to unfold it. And when the Lamb takes the scroll, these people who are holding these expectations, these hopes, these desires, it says they take up a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll. Why? Because you were slain. Your sacrificial death is exactly what makes you capable of taking this scroll. The way you live, the way that you embodied, the way that you engage the world is what makes you able to take this scroll because you were slain and by your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. As a kid... I did martial arts. So you can probably tell by my lightning fast reflexes. Killer instinct. <laughs> and I feel like this is going to be a, an oversimplification. So if you do martial arts, don't correct me. But this is an oversimplification. But I feel like there are two philosophies in martial arts about how you interact. And I'll call the first philosophy, technically, punch you in the face. It's complex, requires a lot of training. So basically, someone comes at you, and you punch them in the face. Sometimes there's deviation in techniques. You might kick them in the face as well. But this is one philosophy of martial arts, that you are going to use force to overcome evil, injustice, or deal with the problems that you face. So you have a problem, you punch it in the face. You have crime in your area, you use force to stop it. You have a nation threatening another nation, you use force to stop it. You have people performing in a way or doing things in a culture that are bad, you write a law, you pass a policy to control behavior, you use force. Someone disagrees with you and it's an important issue, you argue with them. Use your words to punch them in the face. And there is a lot of power to that kind of philosophy. Something really capable about that kind of philosophy. It can preserve something. It can stop something from happening. But there are also very serious limitations to that kind of strategy in the world. You cannot, for example, force relationships, feelings, or attitudes into existence. If I argue you, the more aggressive that I argue you, studies show, the less likely you are to be convinced of my position. If I punch you in the face, you're not going to be my friend. Force rarely creates relationship. Force rarely enables the changing of feelings. Force rarely curates in somebody affection. Now, force might act like a boundary around behavior, like a law or a policy. That can be good and right, but it rarely changes what's happening inside, which then would lead to genuine behavior change. So there are limits to the way that force works in the universe. On the other side of force, there is another philosophy that has less to do with strength and force. And you see it in martial arts like Aikido or Judo, 
where the philosophy is using movement and the force of someone else against them. So instead of meeting force to force, you use someone else's force. So if somebody comes at you, you step in such a way that their movement and momentum continues forward and they are taken by their own movement or momentum. When I was 11, bring my mom and my dad because this is a story about them and they're right here. My parents are dating, so they're not married yet at this point, they're dating. And my mom, to woo her future husband, decided she would like to show him some karate. And he was, she was like, hey, this story, is, it still is so funny. She's like, hey, grab me from behind. I just learned how to flip somebody in a bear attack. Except I don't think you told him that. She was like, grab me from behind. And I remember we're in the room. They're dating. I think that's important context. They are not married. He comes up behind her. She's like 5'3 and 100 pounds. And she, he comes up behind her, grabs her. And before anyone has any idea what's happened, he is laying on the ground in front of her. Still proposed. Amazing. Just amazing. Now, she is objectively smaller than he is. She is a tiny human being. And yet, she used his force, his strength, his power against him and flipped him, disarmed him, and disoriented him. So he lays on the ground confused and, I guess, in love. This kind of philosophy or this kind of movement in the world, it is such a disorienting experience to have your own force used against you. It's like when you go to step somewhere and the step isn't there and you just fall forward. There's something so disorienting about it because you've committed with all your force and with all your energy and what you expected to meet you doesn't meet you. Instead, you travel through. Or maybe you've been arguing with somebody that you love, and tensions are growing hotter and hotter, and you're meeting each other with force to force. Psychology refers to that as complementary actions. One action is met by a similar kind of action. You just keep meeting each other. But then somebody in that fight changes tactics and looks at you and says, I'm sorry. I love you. I don't want to fight with you. And then that is such a disorienting experience. Every time my wife does that to me, I'm like, well, I, I love you too. Dang it. It takes the momentum that you had and throws it against you and it reveals like your behavior and your actions and your principles and all the things that you were doing were strange or out of whack or are not going to work. The cross and the power of God displayed on the cross are like that. Like divine Aikido. Jesus absorbs all of our pain, all of our evil, all of our injustice, all of our force into himself. And we expect our force to be met with equal force. That's always what we've experienced. We expect our energy, our violence, our actions to be met with the same kind of action, a complementary response. But Jesus absorbs it. All of our energy into himself. 
And as our movement and our force and our momentum goes forward, we expect to hit some kind of wall, but we don't. Our fist doesn't land. Our force moves forward. Our momentum carries us, and we lose footing and we fall. Heather last week mentioned a philosopher named Simone Weil, and Simone Weil says, grace is like gravity. It is experienced in the fall. Our momentum carries us, and we lose footing and we fall. Jesus on the cross, in his divine Aikido of our violence and our sin, disarms us and reveals our actions for what they are. By taking into himself all that we would throw at him, by being harmed, even killed by our sin, he disarms us, uses our momentum against us, reveals what truly has happened. And in that moment, our nature and our actions are revealed for what they are, these things that ultimately hurt us. And that is disorienting. So much so that sometimes we keep fighting, we keep throwing fists, we keep trying to hit that wall to find force to meet force, and yet Jesus just continues to Aikido our actions, continuing to reveal the emptiness of our sin, the emptiness of our violence, the emptiness of our actions for control and management. Until we are disarmed and revealed. And in that space of being disarmed and having our actions and our motivations, and our nature revealed, space begins to be created for genuine relationship and healing. It's what force can't do. You can force someone's behavior to be better. That's true. You can force someone into a room to protect them in society. That's true. You can use force to preserve, to build walls around, but you cannot force relationship. You cannot force affections. You cannot coerce love. And if God did, if God did coerce love, it would be such a violation of human freedom and his own nature that he would stop being good. You cannot coerce love. You cannot force affection. And so instead, Christ absorbs it, uses our movement against ourselves to make room for truth, for our nature to be revealed so that there is space for relationships, space for true healing. This is the power of God revealed in the cross. It's the power to turn evil against itself and open space for healing. And it is hard for us to accept. I think it's hard for us to accept not only because we so picture God as a different kind of figure, we so picture power differently, But it's so difficult for us to accept because we don't really have imagination to believe that that anything is better than what we have around us. That there could be another way of operating in the world that would actually produce life. 
You could say we don't really have the faith for this kind of God, or this kind of action, or this kind of love. We need imaginations renewed by Jesus' action to see and believe in what is actually possible when God is at work. We need a kind of faith that is inspired by resurrection. A kind of faith that is inspired by a God who could aikido enemies into friends. We need that kind of imagination because we have been invited to participate with the work this God is doing. This is where the text of Revelations continues. In verse 9 and 10, it says, You, the Lamb, purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will rule on earth. Jesus is a king who is establishing a kingdom for people from every tribe and every nation. It is a kingdom without borders. And it is filled with priests and rulers. And that language echoes very deliberately things that happen in the Old Testament. One, it echoes a moment in Exodus 19 where God forms Israel and says, you will be my priests to show the world who I am. You will mediate my presence to the world. And it also mirrors Genesis chapter 1 and 2 when God says you will be image bearers, you will carry my image, and you will participate in my rule with me, like me. We are made to be a people who witness to God, who are mediators of God's actions and presence and work in the world, who extend God's kingdom to the world. We've been invited and empowered to participate in that work. This is why our image of God matters so much, because if we have a God who is distant or simply spiritual, our mediation will be empty. If we have an image of God that always meets force with force, then our mediation will look the same, which, let's be honest, that's exactly what it looks like most of the time. For image of God is weak, our mediation will look weak. But if our God is the one who is revealed on the cross, the one who makes tables for enemies to transform them into friends, then we are invited and empowered to do the same work. Monsieur, what if we believed that? What if we believe that? What if we have the faith to believe that God can actually bring things back from the dead? What if we actually believe that? Well, I think that we would have an image in our own head, at least, that offers the pain and injustice of our world something. But I think we would also be able to offer something different than the kingdoms of our world always offer something that actually creates space for life and healing and relationship. Monsieur, what if? Can we hold that question? And in a moment, we will continue to worship. 
Before we hold that question, and I want you to find, I think you, sh- you received communion elements as you entered into this space. I'd like you to take that question and bring it to this moment of communion. Because at this practice of taking the elements, what we do is we enter the story of Jesus aikidoing our sin, our evil, revealing who we truly are to provide us room to receive grace. So as you take that what-if question, bring it to this moment of communion, which I'll pray and then you can take. Would you bring it to that communion moment? Let it saturate your heart and your mind. Let it push your imagination and expand what you believe about God. And then would it send you out a people of this king and this God? Monsieur, let's pray. Spirit, You bear witness to the truth of Christ. And so in this moment, in this space, and as we gather at the table, and as we sing your songs, and as we hear your word, would you bear witness in our heart, and in our minds, and in our bodies, who you really are. How you work in the world, how you operate in the world, how you transform enemies into friends, how you create space for life. Would we believe that's always how you operate with us? Would you shape us into a people who send that and extend it to the world around us? We pray these things in your name. Amen.